I want to pray before we get started. Father, I just thank you for this morning, Lord, and we thank you like what was sung about, like was just prayed, Lord. We ask for your Holy Spirit to come, Lord, your presence to come and really do what only you can do, Lord. God, and let us just do a work in our hearts and in our minds, shift things that need to be shifted, Lord, awaken things that need to be awakened. Father God, just breathe afresh on us this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, first of all, before I, I go any further, this uh, teaching sermon, um, I am speaking to myself first. As I was preparing for this, I need to hear this, I feel like, more than anybody. Uh, so whatever comes out of my mouth is maybe kind of a, a critique. Uh, me first, okay? Me first. Um, so with that said, uh, I want to quote Francis Chan. Francis Chan, many of you might know that name. He's an author. He was a pastor, uh, quit the pastor to do house church stuff. He was in Asia for a little while, and then now he's working in San Francisco amongst the homeless and has this house church movement. But he's, he's known as being an exhorter of the church. He, he looks at the scriptures and then kind of looks at what we're doing, and, and then he lets you have it, that type of guy. Um, and he wrote a book about eight or ten years ago called The Forgotten God. And it's not about God himself, as we think of the one true God, but when we think of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he was speaking specifically about the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says. You may think that the title, Forgotten God, is a bit extreme. From my perspective, the Holy Spirit is tragically neglected and for all practical purposes, forgotten. While no evangelical would deny his existence, I'm willing to bet there are millions of churchgoers across America who cannot confidently say that they have experienced his presence, experienced his presence or his action in their lives over the past year, and many believe they cannot. That's his assessment um, of the church. And, and one thing I want to make clear, I want to, when I quote some of these things, I want you to more think about yourself individually because I'm not critiquing the church at all. This is more of like, hey, think about your own self when something like that is read, okay? I was at a conference, this was a while ago, about 20 years ago, Bill Bright, it was kind of a recruiting, like, you want to come on staff with Campus Crusade for Crisis, which is one of the largest evangelical organizations in the world. Um, and Bill Bright was there, it was a few years before he was about ready to step down and pass on uh, the baton. And I'll never, I don't remember anything of their conference, but I do remember the sense that I got from him was like, hey, this organization is great, and it's got really large, but there was this plea within him to say, man, let, can we not forget the Holy Spirit when we're doing our ministries? Because if you know crew, it's large, and when ministries become large, they can just start to function like a machine. And I'm not saying that's what's going on. I'm not saying that's what happened, but I could just tell within his voice like, oh, we need, there needs to be this return to ministering and sharing the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and not just out of duty and we have the four spiritual laws, so let's do that. So you have these two big, big evangelical leaders within our world saying something similar, but let's take it from somebody from Asia, Brother Yoon, you might know that name. He's worked with the underground church in China and he said this, after visiting the States over a four-year period, it was amazing to see the deadness of the church, or even again, just think of your own life. Like, is there a deadness within your life, a lacking, a dryness, a cracking, a desertness, a deadness in the church? It felt like something was missing. 
the fire of God and the presence of God. That was his perspective. Or take an American who uh, goes to Asia to find out what was missing. Bob Roberts, who planted a church up in Michigan called Northwood, was kind of doing the thing, got up to like 500 people. Uh, he had a great vision for the church and the community, but there was a personal lack in his life. There was something, when he looked at his church, he just said, ah, we're just, he just felt like there was something missing. They're doing all the right things, but just this personal lack and a lack within his church. And then he went to China, and this is what he said, the believers there. He said, they were like nothing I'd ever seen before, anybody like I'd never met not just culturally, but spiritually, it blew me away. Sure, their theology was a little fuzzy. Some don't even have whole Bibles. Some just have parts of the Bible or perhaps just an entire book or few passages. But they know God at a depth I never had. Worship takes on a completely new expression on the other side of the world. No sound systems, no calculated transitions, just sweaty believers crammed together in small rooms, weeping as the Holy Spirit oozes out of them. As I've never before experienced, these people are living what I grew up hearing the church should be. Now, for some of us, that, that language, like the Holy Spirit oozing out of you, like that might be weird. And it is weird. Like I read that, I'm like, what does that look like? That's weird sounding, using that language. But that's his experience of what he saw within these people, and it so radically impacted, and obviously the story, I read his book, just transformed his church when he came back. He's like, guys, I, I can't go back to what we were doing. And it transformed his church, and his church grew even more, but more spiritually, not numerically wise. Okay? And I have seen, I think in my own life, times like that, I think my journey with, you know, the presence of God and the Holy Spirit, I think... I, I have a tendency to kind of like look out and be like, man, I feel like we're missing something. Like, why aren't we pressing into the person of the Holy Spirit? Why aren't we pressing into the presence of God more? Because if you read the Bible outside our Western cultural context, if you're just given a Bible without any cultural context, you would see that the Holy Spirit is as vital to the believer as oxygen is to our human body. You would know that the Spirit led the first Christians in Acts to do unexplainable things in early church history, to do unexplainable things in the culture around them. And the reality is the early church knew less about the Holy Spirit than most of us in the church, at least that is an intellectual sense. Many of us don't need more knowledge about the Spirit from a cerebral vantage point. We need to know the Holy Spirit in an experiential knowledge. So my encouragement to you is to don't let your views be determined by one particular denomination, which most people, that's what they grew up in. Okay, so I do college ministry. I get people about 18 to 20 years old and their view of, set aside the Holy Spirit, their view of church and Christianity is like looking through a straw. That's their biblical worldview. Yet most of them think they know this much. And I'm like, bro, oh, take a straw and hold up your eyeball. That's about how much you probably realize in reality. And so most of us just kind of grow up within one vein. 
and just do what they've been told. They assume what they have been taught by one person is right and never really studied for themselves and just told, hey, this is the way it is, so that's the way I'm going to be, and did not question it. But the problem is I think most of what we believe about the Holy Spirit is based on tradition and cultural comfort, not necessarily the Scriptures. And I certainly don't advocate ignoring the Scriptures. Don't hear me just be like, experience. Man, I am all about the Scriptures and not basing everything on experience. But to completely ignore experience and experience from the Scriptures and from church history, I think, in my opinion, my opinion is unbiblical to just start excluding those things. Nope, 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 nope. So I think the best way when it comes to looking at and observing the Holy Spirit, well, who is the Holy Spirit? What is the presence of God? There's a man, Gordon Fee, who wrote a book, not a book, it's a thousand-page commentary on Paul's epistles, and he takes every single verse that Paul mentions the Holy Spirit and does a commentary on it. I've only read like a, a tenth of it, like a hundred pages, and it is dense. But a lot of people that I respect agree with Gordon Fee in that he breaks the Holy Spirit down into thinking of, of, of three ways, three, three words that he uses in the title of his book, and it's God's empowering presence. God's empowering presence. God, meaning he is God's person. He is a person that we are in relationship with. So the Holy Spirit is somebody that we are in relationship with. Power, meaning this is how Jesus did his miracles. This is how the, uh, the apostles and the disciples and the early church fathers did, this, did their miracles. And not only miracles, but if we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse five, 4 and 5, Paul says, my preaching and, or my message and pre- my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Or a little later in uh, chapter 4, verse 20, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. So it's God's person who we're in relationship, God's empowering how we live out the Christian life, miracle-wise, small or big, and then God's presence, the Spirit as God with us. And that's kind of more of what I wanted to focus on is God's presence, but you will see the other two entwined. And what we see in the scriptures from the very beginning in Genesis is this unhindered relationship that, that Adam and Eve have with God, right? One of, the most, one of my favorite verses is how Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. We don't really know what that means other than, than they were walking, you know, there was unhindered relationship there, okay? Walking with God, unhindered communion with him, and it doesn't take very long, right? Chapter three, the fall. But in Revelation... Chapter 21 and 22, there's several verses about how God's going to come back or or, uh, how God's going to dwell with his people again, and we're going to be with him forever. So it's between Genesis 3 and the end of the Bible that we have a problem, that there is a problem, right? And uh, what we want to see and what I'm going to kind of go through is a chronological description of how God is constantly after the fall, wanting to be with his people, not just in theory, but with his presence. 
okay, with his presence. Now, God is God. I understand this. Let's just make this clear. God is God, and God is everywhere. But when we talk about God's presence, we're talking about God's nearness, or in theological terms, his manifest presence, this idea that all of a sudden, God is in the room, right? God is in the room. At some level, I think a lot of us, you know, we, we sense that every once in a while, maybe during worship. A lot of people connect with God during worship on a Sunday morning because it's really the only time you might actually stop and just be still and actually, oh, breathe and have our full minds fixed on God. And sometimes we sense God's nearness. Sometimes I'm brought to tears. I, I don't know how many times I've come in here, like on a Sunday morning, like dead, you know, just long week. Sometimes I don't want to be here. I'd rather be home in bed. I'd rather, you know, be doing something else. But, you know, it doesn't take very long. Sometimes just one song, all of a sudden, oh, man, I just, the tears start to flow a little bit. And I just sense God's nearness. He's, he's in a matter of a moment kind of breaking down the, the, the stuff, the gunk that's kind of maybe collected over the week in a sense. But I sense God's nearness. And so, again, I want to look at this, this story about God's unrelenting, unstoppable desire to be with his people. So uh, you, if you have a Bible, you can turn to John 16. We're going to get there. Um, but I just the easiest way is for you to just kind of follow along. Use your mind's eye right now to picture, and I'll have a couple slides to kind of help you give you an idea. But just historically, we're just going to go boom, 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 boom. We're going to go from um, Sinai to tabernacle to temple to exile to Jesus to the spirit and to the church body. Okay, it sounds like a lot, but it actually goes fairly quick. Okay, so first, after the fall, remember, after Egypt, or uh, Egypt takes the Israelites captive, right? God comes to Moses in a burning bush and says, hey, I need you to go set my cap the captives free. God goes, and or Moses goes before Pharaoh, leads the people out of Egypt, and now what? They're wandering. Here's what God does. He speaks to Moses and says, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud in Exodus 19. I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Skip down to verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. So again, we, can't, we don't have no comprehension for that. We can kind of watch a movie or kind of think about what that might look like. But what we see is God's presence is powerful. It's intense. Uh, it's terrifying. <laughs> I mean, to just picture that, this cloud, just brrr, wind, um, Man, that's intense. So try to picture that in your mind's eye, that this is the first time that God, since the fall, that God has come and said, hey, I'm going to meet with my people. Boom, comes on the mountain. Next, he comes to the tabernacle or the tent. This will be on a slide. A little bit later in Exodus, once God gives, comes from the mountain, he sets up, tells Moses, starts to give Moses instruction on how to set up ethically the nation of Israel. Like, this is how I want you to behave. Here come the Ten Commandments, and here are some boundaries for you. And then so later on, he says this in Exodus, then have them make a sanctuary, a dwelling place for me, says the Lord, and I will dwell among them, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you, okay? 
it will come. There it is, okay? So this is what it would have looked like. It is a mobile camping trip, okay? Lots and thousands and thousands of Israelites camped around this tabernacle. And the big structure, you see the smoke coming out of it. That's what uh, the rest of Exodus uh, was about, was giving instruction on how to build this thing because, again, God wanted to come down where the Ark of the Covenant was and wanted to, again, dwell with his people. It comes from the mountain to the tabernacle, but they're mobile, okay? Um, and one thing we have to realize is that this is a big deal in the ancient Near East, and even today, people that have uh, uh, gods, they tend to be the god of the valley, the god of the sea, the god of the a harvest, things like that. This was unheard of that you would actually have a God of the universe come and dwell and actually travel with his people. That didn't exist in the ancient Near East, but that's what this God does. At the end of Exodus, it says this in chapter 40, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the, the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud would lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels, okay? So God moved from the mountain to the tent and they followed the, the cloud. When God moved, they moved, Okay, and so what's really, really important to understand, just kind of stop and pause for a moment, is that when we talk about glory, most of the time in the context we talk about glory, we're saying, hey, give glory to God, which means give praise to God. Um, you know, what we want to do is we want to make God's name famous. That's most of the time the context in which we use the word glory. But if you were to read the Old Testament, a lot of times, if not most of the time, that word glory actually uh, refers to God's actual manifest presence, okay? So it's really important to understand, especially when you're reading through the Old Testament. So fast forward hundreds of years, they're in the land of Canaan, and everybody kind of hopefully knows at least King David, right? David has a son and so, named Solomon, and Solomon wants to build a structure. I was corrected last service. I used the word brick, it's not, they're not bricks. She's like, it's not bricks. They're not this big. They're stones. Because she's been to Israel, we've been to Israel. This, the temple is huge. Like stones are like the size of a bus, some of them, okay? Um, but this is a building, a structure, brick and mortar that Solomon built to be a temporary place for God, which is in Jerusalem. Fascinating fact, if you know anything about the Wailing Wall, you guys heard of the Wailing Wall, right? You've seen pictures of it, okay? It's in Jerusalem, it's this wall, uh, a part of the um, temple that Herod built, which we'll get to, but it's a part of the temple where the Jews will walk up to this part of the wall and they'll put their head on it. And the reason they do that is because geographically that is as close to the presence of God in the temple that they can get. They think, okay, so many X amount of feet this direction from this spot is the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God's presence is, and this is as close as we can get, so we're gonna worship God at this wall. That's why that space is so sacred, and that's why you know a lot of people that study Bible prophecy are like, keep your eye on that wall. Keep your eye on Jerusalem, okay? Because Jews today still feel like that is where God's presence is or is going to be, okay? It is in a permanent place now. 
Here's the ribbon cutting ceremony in 1 Kings 8. When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priest could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. Okay, so Mount Sinai, tent, mobile tent, now a permanent structure, notice the language, place for you to dwell, God, forever. People would actually see the presence of God from that place. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. This is a high point for the nation of Israel. Finally, a landing place for God's presence, right? And up until this point, there's only a select few that could actually stand in the presence of God. People could come and observe, but only the high priest could go in once a year to be within the presence of God and offer a sacrifice. And here's the problem. Not long after the temple was built, Israel turns away. So time and time again, God would, would tell his people like, hey, if you obey me, I'll bless you. Just don't chase other gods, 10 commandments, all that stuff. If you do, if you don't, I'm gonna send you in exile. So he warned them year after year. He would send prophets to warn them, warn them, warn them. Finally, he couldn't take it. And God said, what, he did what he said he would do in Ezekiel 10, he said, this is the vision that Ezekiel has. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched the cherubim spread their wings and rose uh, from the ground, and as they went, their wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of, the, the glory of God of Israel was above them. So up until this point, it's been all about God coming to, this, to his people. God warned them time and time again. The problem is, hey, hey, I'm out. Ezekiel has this picture. The glory of God departs from the temple, like literally out the door. God is MIA. Um, and the question is, well, well wh wh where is he? Okay, where is he? And this is where it gets even more interesting because Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, they start to prophesy about a future coming in chapter 37 of Ezekiel, then he said to me, God said to him, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone because the glory of God has departed. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my, listen to the language, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. Now I know that was a lot, but God is promising to come back. He's not gonna break his promise. He's left. His glory is departed, but he is promising that he is coming back after a season of discipline. And he makes this promise that we just kind of pass over, but to say that he's going to put his spirit in them, that would have caught everybody's attention. Whoa, hold on a second. You're going to put your spirit... Ezekiel might have been writing that going, am I hearing you correctly? Am I in people? You're not just going to come back amongst your people, but you're going to come in your people. 
Fast forward to Jesus. John chapter one, about 400 years later, by this time the temple had been destroyed. Israelites had been taken captive. Now they're back in the land, but the temple is destroyed. It had been rebuilt by Herod. Just because it was rebuilt, historically, there is no evidence that God's presence ever came back. Really important. And then Jesus shows up. And we read this. 1 John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. That word dwelling is the word where we get the word tabernacle. And so what John is communicating is that the glory of God that departed has now come in the person, in the man of Jesus. And we, always, we think about that. We like, okay, I know God in the flesh. But we need to understand that the glory, the empowering spirit of God, the presence of God, this big manifest thing that we just read about time and time and time and time again, this glory is now in the person of Jesus. And what's fascinating about the life of Jesus and what really got him killed is that all the things that, were, that Jesus did were done outside the temple. All his miracles, all his healings, and all that stuff that he did was supposed to be done within the temple. That's why the Pharisees got so upset and challenged him so many times, because he took what was done, supposed to be done inside the temple, he took that outside the temple. That's why they were questioning him so much. But that's what God's glory, that's what God's presence does and is doing historically at this time, wanting to get out to the people like he promised, dwelling amongst his people. So we come to John 16, verse seven. And this is where I want you to just, if you have a Bible, read it along with me. John 16, seven. This is toward the end of Jesus' life. He's kind of given some final instructions to his disciples. And then he says this, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good, it is for your embitterment, it is for your profit that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate cannot come to you. Now, you and I read that, and I think we kind of take that for granted, but if you're a disciple, if you're one of the 12, and you're reading that, you think, well, what, Jesus, what's better than you? Like, we've been following you for three years. We've watched you do all this stuff, all these miracles. We're on the A-team. And you're gonna leave, and you're saying it's better that you leave so that you can send the advocate, the comforter, the Holy Spirit? And Jesus goes on to say, later on to John, that not only will the Holy Spirit be with you, but he will be in you, like what was promised in Ezekiel. Like what was promised in Ezekiel. I was watching the women's soccer game at Western, and I've read this verse 100 times. Maybe not 100, I've read it a bunch, right? I've read it a ton. And it just hit me again. It's like my main part, but it just hit me again. Like, man, to think that Jesus is telling his disciples that it's better that he goes away, that the Holy Spirit can come. I mean, that verse alone, along with 
Everything else in the Bible, the New Testament that's talked about with the Holy Spirit, just that alone should cause us to be wanting, desiring, thinking like there must be more to this Holy Spirit than what I know. There must be more to this than what Jesus is telling me. And not in an extra biblical sense, but it gets where you get into Paul's letters explaining the Holy Spirit or later on in John chapter 16 and 17 about the Holy Spirit. We'll kind of finish with Acts chapter two because this is when the, the Spirit is poured out. Acts chapter two, when the church is born, Jesus tells the disciples after, when he dies, like, hey, after he dies, he rises again, says, hey, go for me in Jerusalem. Wait there for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter two, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. And then we look and look on in, in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about how people are temples, individual people are temples of the Holy Spirit, how you, he uses the word you, singular, but he also uses the word you in the, in the context of church, plural, that man, when we gather together as a church, it's not just these individual temples of the Holy Spirit, carriers of his presence. Man, when we come together, church is more than just me talking and us singing. At least it should be. Man, there should be this fluid, water-like, encouraging, praying, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, like Paul says in Colossians. There should be some sense of flow in our lives to one another. So, application. I'm going to shotgun in closing time. I'm just going to shotgun some stuff with application. Because to try to like, undertake all of this is ridiculous in, in 30 minutes. So simply, some of these are just really, really quick and really simple. Number one, a reminder, simply a reminder that the Spirit of God is in you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God is in you. And honestly, I just, I just don't, I'm speaking to myself, I just don't think we've internalized that yet or enough. I mean, the thought is just kind of like stunning. At some level, the, the, the wires just start to short circuit in my brain. To think that, man, the moment I gave my life to Jesus, I'm filled with the Spirit and that I'm a carrier of his presence. Number two, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave you. Now, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. That's really clear in Scripture. Like, if you choose to just go off and sin, like, man, you'll grieve the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit doesn't just say, man, you are sinning too much. I'm out. Paul says twice that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the wording there in Greek is that of a signet ring. So if you think about Caesar or any king that has a decree written, wax melted, signet ring stamped, whoever breaks that seal dies. That's the imagery that's given, that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't leave you. I met with a guy afterwards, 25 years old, went to a Christian school, um, Second time at church here has come with his neighbor. He's weeping because the opposite was told him. It sounded, the little conversation I had sounded like kind of a really legalistic church. He just, 
just condemnation and guilt, and he's crying because he'd never heard that before. Paul, I'm sitting there saying, man, I'm sorry. On behalf of Jesus, I apologize that that's what, that's what you were taught. I apologize. And I said, I, in Scripture, I just don't see that. The Holy Spirit you know, prayed for him. Okay. Number three, everything the Spirit does should point to Jesus. Amen? Everything he does should point to Jesus. See, that's why this is a shotgun. I'm kind of all over the place. It's just pow, pow. Number four, God has gone to great lengths. Let it just, again, kind of a reminder, going chronologically. Oh, man. Again, I don't think we've really internalized this, right? Thinking of like the, just the dramatic scene on the mountain and then dramatic scene at the tabernacle and then dramatic ribbon cutting because God's presence is now filling the temple. He's got a spot, right? That the same power that's in Jesus actually lives in us. Man, I just, the thought of God coming to us in that magnitude, I just don't think we've internalized it. So let the, the great lengths that God went to get to you amaze you. And with that amazement and that intimacy, there's a guy, Brother Lawrence, who wrote a book called, I think it's called Practicing the Presence of God. You know, he was a monk that worked in a monastery, and he was so famous for practicing the presence of God. You know what he was? They, he he, he uh, was known as the man in the kitchen, okay? Like, I'm going to see the man in the kitchen, and everybody knew who they were talking about. This man was so known for practicing the presence of God that they wanted to get around this guy and just glean from him. And he says this, he says this, Brother Lawrence says this, practice the presence is just that. It's a practice. It's a discipline. The time of business does not differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise of the kitchen, when the people are calling for different things, I possess God in tranquility just as much on my knees in the sanctuary as in front of my sink. Man, how many of us do that? I'm the first to raise my hand because I'm the first one to say, man, I fail at that. Number five, become more aware of his presence. Like, like he said, it's a practice. That's probably one of the biggest encouragements along with just the reminder is, man, it takes practicing the presence of God. We all like those songs. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. We all know that one. I mean, that song is all about being carriers of his presence. Manifest yourself in our lives. But man, do we really want that? Become more aware of his presence presence. Because the more that we practice his presence, the more we hear his voice. One of my life verses is John 5, 19, the son, speaking of Jesus, Jesus speaking of himself, the son can do nothing of himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. I'm like, well, that's what I want. At some level, I think, well, I think that's what all of us should be like at some level. Like whatever Jesus wants, that's what I want. Whatever the father wants, that's what I want. And, and that, for me, part of this is my calling, but I think at some level, again, like we all have the ability to hear God's voice. Jamie Winship, who is an ex-police officer in New York City, ex-CIA agent, agent, if you ever know that name, read any of his books, he's got books, um, he solves crimes, basically, some of them, uh, by listening to God's voice. 
he would freak his partners out because he'd walk into a crime scene. The first thing he would do is he would rebuke the enemy. He'd silence the enemy. He'd start speaking out against the demons. And he says, his partners would just weird out that. But in his book, I'd have to close it. I'd listen to his sermons and I'd be like, I don't know if that really happened. I believe it, but it's hard for me to believe. It's just crazy stories. But he just talked about hearing God's voice in his job. And he said this, he said, the new strategy for evangelism is hearing God's voice for reaching the world. You know, I, I, uh, for me, again, this is part of my calling. Um, but, but that, for me, that's a main thing. For me, that's a main thing. I think if, again, all of us, I feel like, I, I think biblically that all of us at some level have the ability to hear God's voice. I just don't know if we take the time to do that. Okay, so again, part of it is my job, but just to give you a couple of examples. I, uh, for those of you who don't know, I, I work with college students. I work uh, for 25 years. Currently, I'm working with a fellowship of Christian athletes at, here at Western. I was invited to speak at uh, a college ministry I came from in Corvallis. And at the end of, I studied, got my teaching, and I spent about 10, 15 minutes in listening prayer. Best way to describe it. I said, okay, God, is there anything you want me to say to anybody, you know, from up front or individually, because I knew some of the people um, and so I wrote down a few things, and then I said some things afterwards. And one of the words I, I felt like God speaking to me is like, there's somebody that feels like they're a black sheep of the family, and that's a lie from the pit of hell. That's all I wrote down. So I, the other words I kind of gave, people came up to me and was like, that's for me, you know, crying, like, oh, you know, praise God, pray for you, listening prayer, taking a risk, God speaks to them. But no one came up to me about the black sheep. The next week, I'm teaching on campus at at FCA, and this girl comes up to me on the softball team, first time there. She comes up to me and says, oh, thank you so much. I grew up in the church, but I kind of fell away. Um, but what you spoke tonight, you know, meant a lot, da-da-da. I always felt like the black sheep of the family. I'll see you next week, and just kind of walked away. But I was immediately like, that was for you. She comes back the next week, and I pull her aside. I say, hey, do you remember what you told me last week? She's like, well, I introduced myself. She remember that. I told my iPad around. I said, hey, I wrote this down two weeks ago. So I felt like somebody felt like the black sheep. And you said when you shook my hand that you felt like a black sheep of the family. And she just started bawling, just started crying. You know, and so I just told her, like, hey, that's a lie. Prayed for her, you know, coming home from hunting, listening to 10th Avenue North. Song I hadn't listened to in like 10 years. I start crying again. And God speaks to me through my emotions like that. So I immediately like, oh, who's this? Is this for me, Lord? Who's this for? And God just starts to show me it's for this, this woman on the basketball team. I was supposed to meet with her, and she had to cancel because she got called into work. But she shares her testimony a couple weeks ago. And again, I just took my breath away. Took my breath away because... I sat there and listened to what she went through. And I'm like, you need to hear the lyrics to this song. And I had printed them out. And so I pulled her aside afterwards. I got the same thing. I said, I just started reading the lyrics. I said, you need to hear this. That the enemy is holding this little section of your life over your head. And it's a well that you keep going back to. And God wants to free you from that. You know, again, she's just crying. I told her to go listen to the song. You know, she texted me later that night. Like, hey, just... That song so ministered to me. And so my encouragement to you guys is to, man, be aware of what God is doing in the room, what he's doing in your life. Amen.